Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 7 being recorded on December 21st, 2015. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Happy Star Wars week, Scott. Thanks, Jason. Welcome back to the U.S. It feels good to be on the same day. That was kind of just very strange to me. It was time travelish. It was a little disorienting. I am uh, very happy to be home. You know, I didn't tell you in advance, but this is a special episode. I've seen a bunch of statistics that most podcasts fail before episode seven. So we've actually passed an inflection point this week. Boom. We proved all the haters wrong. We lasted episode seven. So take that, all you haters that probably don't listen to the podcast. Exactly. And speaking of episode seven, uh, have you seen Star Wars yet? I have. I saw it twice. I chose the IMAX 3D format. I, I know you haven't seen it, so I don't want to do any spoilers. I uh, I really enjoyed it. I think that JJ did an excellent job. So what was neat is seeing it twice. I picked up five or ten things that second time, and I think I could go a third time and pick up five or ten more things. So it's it's quite dense. So go when you have a fresh mind, have a little caffeine beforehand, and enjoy. Very cool. And uh, looking at the box office stats, you were not alone in your enjoyment of the Star Wars movie. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I got to uh, got to the line at 8 a.m. and thought I would be the first person there, and there was five people before me, and they were all podcasters, oddly enough. So it was like the whole podcast crew. Now, did you bring episodes four, five, and six to watch in the line when you got there at 8 a.m.? I didn't, but they um, they did, and they had all kinds <laughs> of uh, – we, we had a lot of surreal Star Wars debates, as you can imagine. I, I can indeed. In speaking of real life Star Wars, when we first started this podcast, Jeff Bezos launched a rocket and landed it back on the pad. And I, I understand today that SpaceX did a, a similar, although potentially way more impressive feat. Yeah, they um, sent a two stage rocket that carried, I think they had supplies for the space station, and they landed the first stage back on land. Uh, and so that was pretty exciting because. It's the first orbital uh, rocket to actually take off and land. Yeah, which is very cool. And so the big distinction there is much higher. It got to like a practical altitude where it could do real commercial work like launch satellites and payloads and stuff. Yeah, the Jeff Bezos company, which is called Blue Orbital, they did not go as high. Got you. They, they kind of just flirted with the atmosphere and came right back down, whereas this kind of circled the Earth a couple times, delivered a little payload out to the space station, and just came on, right on back down. And I, I feel like now that Elon Musk has guest starred on uh, The Big Bang Theory, he's got he's got several things to lord over Jeff Bezos. Yeah, and he's been in Iron Man. I haven't seen Jeff in that, so that's, that's another one. There you go. There, there, there's actually a, a good holiday reading thing for our folks. If anyone is an Elon Musk fan, as I am, uh, there's a biography out about him that is actually pretty good. It covers a lot more of the SpaceX stuff than I knew uh, and then some of the dirty secrets of X.com and uh, some of his earlier companies and um, pretty interesting. Uh, I liked, I like to do audiobooks. I have about a 30 minute commute so I can kind of chew through an audiobook in a week or two. So I did it on that format, but I'm sure the, the printed or ebook page is just as good. But uh, you would never listen to an audiobook until you were caught up on the Jason and Scott podcast, I assume. Yeah, usually I just listen to our podcasts until um, you know three or four times, and then I listen to an audiobook. Smart. So some really good news this week. 
Several weeks ago, when we were doing the holiday edition of the show, we talked about a lot of those real-time forecasts, and we were seeing a lot of early data that e-commerce was up, and we were seeing you know, the common narrative being that retail was down, uh, brick-and-mortar retail, rather. And at the time, I think you and I both mentioned that, take that with a grain of salt, that the methodologies that folks are using for that real-time data is uh, somewhat dubious. And uh, sure enough, now we're starting to get some of the more credible data streams coming in. Um, and MasterCard just released their data for November, and they obviously see all the transactions that happen on the, the MasterCard-branded credit cards. And they showed the Cyber 5 up in the whole month of Dece- November up by 4.6%. And then perhaps even more credible and helpful, the Department of Commerce released their November data. And if you take automobiles, gas, food, and building materials out of the retail number, retail was up 6% in November, which is the biggest rise we've seen in like four or five months. So some strong evidence that brick and mortar is actually doing uh, reasonably well this holiday season and obviously growing much slower than e-commerce, but but it appears that the entire economy is doing doing well in terms of uh, holiday purchases. Hmm. News of retail's demise is greatly exaggerated. Good uh, to hear for most of my clients, for sure. But speaking of the e-commerce growth, uh, do you have an update for us? Yeah, yeah, we have some uh, same store sales coming out tomorrow that I can't spoil. But what I can tell you is, uh, we always one of the things we look at is not only the year-over-year growth rates, which are always fascinating, but what were the top days of the year? So uh, I'm going to do it David Letterman style. I have the top five. Uh, the fifth biggest day was December 15, uh, which is the Tuesday after Green Monday. So that's kind of interesting. It's kind of a later day than, than we always have. December 1st was the fourth day, which is the Tuesday after Cyber Monday. So kind of interesting to see the Tuesdays perking up here this year. Uh, the number three day was December 14, which is called Green Monday. Um, that was evidently coined by eBay. The number two day was November 27, which is also known as Black Friday. And then, drumroll, the number one day for 2015 was November 30th, which was Cyber Monday. Ah, so certainly not a surprise, those top three. I'm curious, did you see those Tuesdays perform that well last year, or have you looked at multiple years? Because we don't hear as much talk about the Tuesday spikes. I did go back and look at the Comscore data and uh, and our data, and it was very unusual this year to see those Tuesdays. I, I look forward to seeing if Comscore saw the same thing, but their data won't come out for for a long time, so we'll have to we'll have to kind of sit on pins and needles until that comes out to see if it was if it was something about our customer base or what was going on there. Gotcha. Well, now that we passed seven episodes, we'll almost certainly be around when that data does come out, so we'll we'll be able to close the loop on that. Absolutely. I also noticed there are a bunch more articles starting to hit talking about shipping struggles on e-commerce. And I know we we talked earlier about some of the potential struggles that UPS was facing. I've now started to see some articles that that track the percentage of on-time shipments. And they're, they're showing from a few different sources, UPS dropping from their usual 97% down to like a 91 or 92% of all shipments on time. And I know they've now passed this threshold where they're they're actually promising slightly slower delivery times, so that catches some people off guard. You know, overall, it it seems like we're seeing exactly what we discussed could be a challenge. That gosh, UPS added six percent capacity this year from multiple sources. We're seeing e-commerce grow at like sixteen percent, and for most retailers, UPS is 
the preferred and and dominant uh, shipping source that that's used. So it feels like they're seeing the most pain from this e-commerce growth. At the same time, I saw an article from FedEx saying that, hey, we're having a great quarter and our profits are actually up 4% because uh, we're, we're doing more e-commerce orders than we anticipated. And, you know, they generally deliver a lot less e-commerce packages than UPS does. Part of that's because their network is much more optimized for business deliveries and UPS does a little better at home deliveries. But in that FedEx article, what I found interesting is Fred Smith was talking a lot about winners and losers in e-commerce amongst FedEx customers. And what he was describing was that FedEx made all their customers forecast their demand for shipping and that some retailers did a really good job of forecasting their demand and they anticipated this growth and were able to use FedEx to help meet it. But other retailers did not forecast the growth very well and FedEx actually turned down their packages uh, because they simply didn't have the, the capacity and so they, you know, he was talking about there was a clear distinction between retailers that were doing well at their forecasts and retailers that were not doing well. And, you know, frankly, when I read that, my mind went instantly to some of the stories we talked about earlier, like Target or Finish Line, that were literally having to throttle customers coming to the website because they didn't have enough servers to support all the, the demand. And if, if you're not forecasting the demand for the servers, you're almost certainly not forecasting demand for, for the shippers. Um, and so I, I have a feeling uh, that some of the same retailers that were throttling a little bit were also going to see not have as good a access to the shippers based on those bad forecasts. Yeah, it's kind of tough to say to your customers, hey, we're glad you're doing so well, but we really can't uh, take your packages. Sorry, glad you're beating your forecast, but you know, do better at forecasting. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes you just can't. You know, you get you know, you, you have a runaway product, or you get some kind of a promotion that kind of goes uh, rogue on you, and you, it's very hard to predict these things. Absolutely. Although this should be the time of year when those spikes are more predictable than a particular promotion, for example, that way outperforms expectations. Yeah, I've actually seen some cool plugins. Even uh, some some uh, statisticians have built plugins for Google Analytics that can actually look at your historical data and help you do more database forecasting, which is kind of cool. But I did also see some shipping news from Jet. Did you see that? I did. So Jet has kind of a system wide message up, uh, and they've had it up for a while now. I think three days, maybe four, um, where they've just been you know pretty clear saying that there's a high probability your delivery will not be there by Christmas. There's kind of two takes to that story. So they've, they've gotten a little bit of a black eye in the press. People are kind of saying, you know, the headlines are jet can't guarantee Christmas delivery. That was from the USA today. And then uh, recode had jet misses last minute Christmas sales and shows the downside of its model, essentially saying that because it's a marketplace and not a retailer um, like Amazon, that it can't guarantee delivery. Um, Jet kind of when you peel the onion on those articles, Jet's whole argument was, uh, you know what, we're having such a great December that we decided to be really, um, you know, a bit obsessive about customer service and and under promise and over deliver uh, and make sure that people knew that there was some risk they wouldn't get their packages. So it's kind of tricky to you know to understand what the right path there is. I, I do think it's better to be very upfront and not risk upsetting your customers, especially when you're you're young and whatnot. Um, but, you know, you definitely turn away business when you do that. So it's definitely a long-term kind of mindset. Uh, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of thing. And I think it's also true as a marketplace, they just have a little less control over their whole supply chain and how fast vendors will ship. And um, and obviously they try to optimize those shipments through through a, a wider variety of, of delivery tools than some other retailers use. So in yeah. some ways, 
there's just more risk built into their supply chain than than some other retailers. Yeah, one of the articles said they were working on some things to to try to add a little bit more capability there. And so we, we've seen that uh, in a couple marketplaces. So the way Alibaba works is they actually uh, have a network of 3PLs that they recommend. So it's kind of like a network to FBA kind of model. Um, so they have a little bit more integration with the fulfillment systems that are there. Uh, so it's kind of like a tier one, tier two kind of a thing. Uh, and then uh, Amazon's actually doing this with something called Merchant Fulfilled Prime Eligible, where for certain retailers that have a deeper integration, uh, they can sign up for the Prime Promise and their products will show up Prime Eligible. So there are some technological things that Jet can do that, uh, you know, just because they're a marketplace, don't count them out of being able to solve some of that. Uh, just that, that a lot of marketplaces like eBay has never really kind of gotten their head around it. And another interesting aspect in the Recode article, they essentially said, Hey, we're going to do around 45 million in GMV in December. Um, and we have 2 million active. So that was kind of an interesting new data point that, that I hadn't seen them talk about before. Uh, if you do the math on that, that puts them at kind of a, you know, call it a $600 million kind of run rate, which is, which is pretty impressive. So, so nice kind of start for Jet. And they're really only four or five months old now. So, um, you know, well on their way to being a, a pretty big player. Uh, another marketplace that's growing really rapidly is called Wish. And the last data I saw on them, I think they were at 500 million run rate, but that's probably three or four months old and it wasn't a holiday kind of in there. So, you know, Jet coming out of the gates very strong. And I actually respect that they're, they're taking a long term view here and turning away customers if they can't make them happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would certainly imagine that that Jet's advertising budget is considerably larger than Wishes. Yeah. Yes. I don't know though if you've ever uh, uh, if you've ever seen those suggested apps. Wish is always in mind. I don't know. Maybe I'm just uh, targeted or something. If you were going to target people for a marketplace app, I feel like you would be one of the people I would target. Yeah, maybe that's what's going on. Match my audience. You know, an article that that caught my attention, and I, I feel like it might be coming a, an annual tradition. CNBC ran an article quoting Jeff Jordan, who's one of the, the founders of Andreessen Horowitz, a famous VC. And he he was talking about this year being the e-commerce tipping point. And he's telling the story about how he and Mark Andreessen are sitting in a, a retail board meeting and the, the retailer is you know, expressing their, their regret that they had tied up all their inventory in all these stores and now couldn't get it to all the customers that wanted it. And that, gosh, they wish they just held all this inventory in a fulfillment center that they could deliver via e-commerce. And in Jeff's mind, that that was a clear proof point that uh, Mark's earlier prediction that retail is eventually going to die and all of this shopping is going to go e-commerce is is uh, here this year. Yeah, the um, I think it was about 18 months ago they had a post. And um, my favorite part of that post is they had the adoption rate by category. Um, and I do have a Wall Street uh, report that kind of updated that. I, I forget where they get the data. I think it's a combination of the Department of Commerce and the Forester stuff. So you know, some some categories are way ahead, and others are are still very laggy. So it's kind of interesting to watch that. The other one is, you know, how do we how do we rate versus other countries is always pretty interesting. And like you said, and you know, I think in the U.S., depending on which one you look at, we're either at twelve percent or eight percent, depending on certain things that are in or out. Uh, but then you have companies like countries like Korea, where they're up in the high teens or even into the twenties. So I think I agree with them that we we still have a lot of room to run. I, I do think that there's a lot of blocking and tackling that has to happen to get there. Uh, for example, shipping. You know, if if this were kind of like drinking a uh, you know a ginormous thing through a tiny straw here, we've we've got to get that part of the capacity to expand if we're going to you know make 
sales in the U.S. online as big as they are in China, for example. Absolutely. And, and, you know, forget as big as China. If you're, if you're actually going to get to a tipping point where you're at like 50% e-commerce, we're generously at 10% right now. So we're, we're talking about, you know, the UPSs and FedExs of the world having five times as many trucks as they have now. And certainly that, that could happen, but it doesn't feel like next year is the year that that's going to happen. Yeah. So you got in a little bit of a, a tweet, uh, battle with, uh, JJ. How did that go for you? probably went better for him i think he he has a few more followers than me that's actually not true <laughs> he's like listen here retail geek exactly more of my followers were my are my family members than him i think is the main the main distinction but uh no i mean i think he's well-intentioned and he did you know cite that u.s department of commerce data and it you know it should obviously there are a bunch of categories that are growing real fast and there's one category that's well over you know, 20% approaching 40%, but it it's digital goods. So they don't have the shipping constraint. And that, you know, to me makes, makes perfect sense. You don't have to touch them, try them, sit on them, feel them. The Department of Commerce data isn't super current, so it takes a long time for it to come out. A lot of the other data sources like Forrester and Comscore have kind of declared apparel the number one or number two category. And some of those guys put that now at like, 26% in the US. So, you know, I think that's that's a leading category and the fact that that you know one out of every $4 spent on apparel in the US is spent online is pretty darn impressive to me. I just don't think that it's a foregone conclusion that we're we're just one or a couple of years away from 25% becoming 50% and I certainly don't think it's true for all categories. Yeah. And this is a good segue because as an industry, we're really starting to butt up against this whole shipping capacity thing, right? Um, and one one thing I've been following very closely is Amazon and what they're doing. And this all started with a shipping debacle of 2013 where there was – I think it was, was it 3 million or 4 million packages that, that UPS couldn't deliver? Since then, Amazon's been kind of meticulously building out their their infrastructure, not not within fulfillment centers, but – but kind of further down the chain of the last mile. Uh, the first thing they did is they built 15 sortation centers. I, I believe by our math, they're up to about 22 sortation centers. Uh, and then now we're starting to hear a lot of interesting reports about them having uh, tractor trailers that are, are going between fulfillment centers, kind of uh, that B2B part of what happens there, kind of the load balancing between fulfillment centers. Uh, and then this week there was a report out that they are in negotiations to lease uh, over 20 jets to have kind of an air service between. It's not exactly clear what they're going to do with these jets. You know, there's um, some people are assuming it's just kind of for internal use. Uh, the, the thing that I've been thinking about um, having watched Amazon for a while is just to kind of rewind a little bit. They have a very interesting playbook, and the first couple pages of that playbook are pretty familiar. They test a lot of stuff, a la Google or Apple, and if it works, uh, that's great. They scale it up. If it doesn't work, they kill it. So uh, the Fire Phone, I think we would all agree, is kind of in that kind of killed it category. They had an auction thing they tried for a while that they killed. Um, but then what's unique about their playbook is after they've tried something, it's worked, and they've scaled it. Then the thing they do that's kind of non-intuitive, especially for people in offline businesses, is then they open it up for anyone and they share the cost. And uh, so so you, the cloud computing is the most obvious example of that where you have a company like Walmart and they have this huge computing infrastructure and you know they know when women are pregnant before they do kind of a thing uh, because of their big data platform. But they view that as their core asset and they don't let anyone look use it, whereas Amazon said – 
wow, it sure is expensive to have all these computers sitting idle, you know, for every day except Cyber Monday. What if we kind of shared the cost of that with these other folks and thus the cloud computing was born? They've, they've replicated that model with, you know, literally hundreds of different things that they've done. The other one that's obvious is fulfillment centers with FBA. So one of the things we've started thinking about uh, about four years ago is, you know, once they have all this, this infrastructure, why can't they just get into the delivery business themselves? Why can't I ship a package and, you know, Amazon's coming to my office every day anyway. Why can't they pick up a bunch of packages and take them to California or something like that? Uh, there's a famous Jeff Bezos quote where it says, your margin is my opportunity. And I kind of think they look at that and say, you know, we've built 80% of what we need to be a FedEx or a UPS. Let's let's start selectively just chipping away at the other twenty percent. And the, the other thing I I think that's interesting about this is, um, you know, Amazon knows exactly where the most profitable customers are because they know how much they order from Amazon, um, where they all live, how much Amazon is paying to the UPSs and FedExes of the world. So they can actually kind of come at this in a very kind of margin smart way and say. We're going to take the highest margin routes and start to trim those and clip them off of UPS and FedEx and put them onto our system and then work their way down. And they could even stop. So they can say, hey, this big, vast area of Wyoming, we will always use FedEx and UPS. We'll give them that unprofitable route. Uh, and then we will keep all the big metros and these other cities that make sense for us. So um, so we've been talking about this for a while. Um, and uh, then now it's starting to gain these last two reports. There's starting to be a lot more Wall Street analysts that are picking up on this and then also uh, press reports coming out. What, what do you think about it, Jason? I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, as we've talked about, the ability to deliver products to consumers is a major growth constraint. And so it's totally smart for Amazon to be investing in growing that capacity themselves. And uh, like many other products, I certainly think uh, that there is an opportunity for them to turn that infrastructure into incremental profit by offering it to other people. But I tell you, what would be scaring the bejesus out of me if I'm UPS or FedEx or the U.S. Post Office is that Amazon has a pretty proven track record of iterating and improving way faster than those other businesses. And so, you know, them getting into the business, they're likely to be very competitive and uh, be very disruptive. Yeah, the thing for listeners to think about is, would you use, you know, let's say Amazon came to you and said, hey, Mr., uh, you know, IR20 retailer, um, we have a feeling that FedEx couldn't satisfy all of your needs. We can do it for you, you know, through Amazon Air, and uh, we can do it for twenty percent less than FedEx. And we're not going to have that silly holiday constraint, you know. So that that starts to be a really interesting question for retailers. You know, maybe you wouldn't use them for cloud computing, and certainly you wouldn't use them to power your store, uh, and you probably won't use them for fulfillment. But would you use them or fulfillment centers, warehousing? But would you use them as a career? Yeah. And the more of those services that get bundled up, the harder it, it can become to say no. Right. So Amazon, you know, productized their payment service. And so, you know, check out by, uh, with Amazon. They pitched to all the retailers. And, you know, frankly, it didn't get a lot of traction largely because big retailers don't want to brand their site with Amazon logos. And then we've seen Amazon come back and say, well, what if we found some way to introduce Prime eligible into the equation? And now, you know, suddenly giving you access to all these highly profitable customers that Amazon has. And then if they can come after that and say, and we've got this great air cargo service that can solve a bunch of problems for you. Uh, at some point, you 
it becomes hard to keep resting your laurels on the fact that they're a direct competitor um, when they have the most competitive offering out there and you need it to serve your customers. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm very bullish on Amazon investing in uh, fulfillment. I'll, I'll tell you the other common story you hear for solving the fulfillment problem that I'm way less bullish on is, oh, all these shipment problems are going away because we're all gonna we're gonna be able to ship all these packages via Uber. Yeah, I'm not sure. I believe in that. It, the economics doesn't really work because you know, even a short Uber trip is kind of a good ten to twenty dollars. So the economics go the wrong way on that one. I think. Um, however, you know, Amazon is playing around with a similar model with this flex kind of concept. Uh, another, another solution I hear a lot of times is, uh, you know, we're going to ship from the store and, and, uh, you know, I'm not a huge believer in that. I'm curious. What do, what do you think about that? Well, so I like ship from store a lot. If you have goods in store, you should be shipping from store, right? Like you need to unlock that inventory and make it available to more of your customers. And once those goods are already in the store, there's lots of efficiencies in, delivering those to customers that are very close to you. Comma, the economics just can't be the case that it's more efficient to send those goods from a manufacturer to a DC, to a store, have someone unpack those goods in the back, put them on the shelf, and then pay someone else to pull those off the shelf and deliver them to a consumer. So I, I don't think it's a highly efficient supply chain if you're only thinking about getting the products to the consumer at home. I do think there's a bunch of extra benefits to having those products on the shelf, like the fact that millions of people see them and then want them, and it's a powerful marketing tool. And once you've put them on the shelf, you should certainly also leverage that inventory by delivering from that shelf is sort of my take. Yeah, if you can deliver a good customer experience, if if you're getting a high failure rate of, of you know, my my story on that is I always get like this high failure rate. I'll try it, and then it says, sorry, you know, we went to get the product and it wasn't there. It must be in someone's cart, they always say. I'm kind of like, wow, there's so many products and carts wandering through these stores. It's amazing. That, you know, brings up uh, another news tidbit from this week. Uh, the Washington Post had an article talking about buy online, pick up on store, or uh, BOPUS, as we, we often say in the U.S. Um, and in this article, they're quoting a, a Kurt Salman study that 60% of all buy-in-line pickup in-store orders that were placed on Cyber Monday had some flaw in them. So customers didn't get the product they expected or had a, a delay or you know uh, some, some other mistake that literally 60% of the BOPIS orders were flawed. And the, the article included a bunch of anecdotal stories about customers that were you know, severely inconvenienced by a bad BOPIS experience and aren't likely to use it again. Wow. Does that ring true with you? Do you think 60% is the right number? I think it depends on how strict you're being in defining something wrong. Like, I, I don't think 60% of all BOPIS orders, at least for any of the customers that I've looked at, um, don't get the goods to the consumer. Could there be a delay when the consumer gets there? Could there be a misunderstanding about where the consumer is supposed to go to pick up those products? Could, you know, lots of things that shouldn't happen and are bad customer experiences, I do think happen with BOPUS. And I do think there's a way too high of a real failure rate where literally the goods just aren't available and the customer, you know, wasted a trip going to the store. You know, I think that's a service that's kind of in the infancy. Retailers have figured out that it's really important for customers, that there's a bunch of value in offering it, but retailers really haven't invested and uh, solved all of the 
logistics challenges about doing it well and holding themselves to a very high standard. Yeah. I've, I've found if I can kind of mix two or three cutting edge things, then my failure rate goes up towards a hundred percent. So if I, if I do, um, BOPUS with like PayPal, oh, that just destroys these things. They, you know, I get the store and they're like, you haven't paid. I'm like, yes, I have. And they said how, and I'm like PayPal. And they just got me like from another planet. Yeah. I think what you really want to do with that order is mix in a return for part of the cost too, and see how that goes. <laughs> Whether you're a big fan of Bopus or not, I do think the the British have it right. Like they call it click and collect, which just sounds much cooler than Bopus. Yeah. And they have collection centers. Yep, absolutely. That does take me to the next topic that was somewhat interesting. You know, we we talked about Amazon being really the only retailer that's making a major investment in their own fulfillment capacity. There have been a bunch of articles this week talking about how Amazon is really eating the overall marketplace, right? And so I think there was a Bloomberg article that you were quoted in, and the title was Amazon's Eating E-Commerce. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, one analyst had, uh, I think he said that if you look at kind of the that gains that are coming from the 15% growth of, of e-commerce, Amazon's getting a disproportionate share. And I think he had something like, was it 60% or 40%? Yeah, yeah 60%, yeah. Yeah, and if you do the math, it it, it actually makes sense. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think this is it's just amazing that Amazon's at their scale and still growing. You know, all in in our data, twenty percent. But when they report, it'll actually be higher because of the the effect of the uh, the EGM category, electronics and general merchandise. They're just really doing very very well. It's got to be particularly disheartening. There's a number of retailers looking up at Amazon that are making billion dollar investments in their own e-commerce infrastructures and to be spending billions of dollars and still having Amazon extend the gap on you, you know, it has to be pretty terrifying. Yeah. You know, Walmart uh, is building a lot of, uh, they're kind of number two out there in uh, in e-commerce and they're building all these fulfillment centers, but I think they get to six here when they're done with this last build out. And, you know, Amazon has like a hundred and 30 or 40. So it's tough. Yeah, no, I, I get asked to come in on the on the Walmart competition with Amazon a lot. And, you know, I, I tend to tell people I don't think Walmart is even looking to challenge Amazon for share at this point. Like I think all of Walmart's investments, which are pretty prodigious, are really around protecting wallet share of the existing Walmart customer. Um, and so I, you know, I don't even think their aspiration is to peel off prime customers from from Amazon at this point. I think they'd be happy to keep the loyal uh, Walmart customers in the family and stop the defections. Yeah. You know, one thing that kind of is a little tricky with a lot of these articles is, um, and spend a lot of time talking to the press and retailers about this, but it kind of takes a while for it to land. So introduce it to our listeners here. It's how big is Amazon? And, uh, you know, so Amazon's revenue is one number, but what's tricky about it is there's kind of two parts of Amazon packaged in that revenue number. There's the first party, which is where Amazon's the retailer. And then there's third party where Amazon's the marketplace. What causes a lot of the confusion is due to accounting rules, this thing called gap accounting that we all have to live by. Uh, when you're a retailer and you sell, let's, let's pick a hundred dollar item. Uh, you, when you're a retailer and you sell a hundred dollar item, the revenue is a hundred dollars and then you have a normal retail, retail PL. However, if you, Jason, sold that same hundred dollar item on Amazon as a third party seller, Amazon's revenue is now 
you know, essentially 10%, which is their commission or their take rate, uh, minus payment. Usually they'll charge 12%, but two comes out as payment. So we'll just, to keep the math easier, we'll call it 10%. So for that exact same item, Amazon's revenue is now $10. What that does is it has the, the unintended or maybe intended by Amazon. I, I'm kind of convinced Amazon likes it when this is kind of hidden, uh, that understates Amazon's scale. So, so let me give you some numbers here. So this year, Wall Street kind of forecasts that Amazon's global revenue will be uh, 107 billion. So you know maybe they'll get a little higher than that if they have a great Q4. But you know call it 100 to 110 billion, uh, which is pretty amazing, and they're growing 20 percent, right? So that that's that's huge. The U.S. revenues within there uh, are about 60 billion, but all that is first party. Now, Amazon really only gives you one metric, and what they say is 46 percent of their units are from third party. But that's the the keyword there is units. And what's tricky is the bulk of the media business, which is still a, a, about a third of Amazon's sales, is in 1P. And as you can guess, media has a low average order value, kind of sub $10 these days. You know, when's the last time you paid over $10 for an ebook or a DVD or anything like that? So um so what that does is it also has the unintended or intended consequence of making you think 46% of the business is 1P and or is um, is 3P. But it's actually quite higher because the average order value is in 3P is higher because of the media imbalance. So we, we do this whole calculus at ChannelVisor where we, we literally back out all this. We, we have a pretty good idea about what these average order values are and we can get to units and we can get to the 46% and we can make it all work. Um, and the, the punchline is if you, if you do that and we look at 2015 for example, the 1P GMV will be $93 billion. So you take that 107 in revenue, you have about 14 billion. Uh, some of that's AWS, but then the rest is third party revenue. And then you have 93 billion is actually first party uh, where revenue equals GMV. But then we have to multiply times 10 that essentially $13 billion that's out there. So now we get $130 billion for the third-party GMV. So Amazon's total global GMV for this year will be $225 billion compared to 107 in revenue. Now, if we look at the U.S., it's $135 billion. So the, the punchline is Amazon is effectively twice as big as people think it is because they're undercounting the third-party GMV. So uh, so, you know, if you're worried about it uh, at the current scale of kind of thinking of it about a, you know, kind of 60 billion in the US, they're actually north of 135 billion in the US, which is, which is pretty impressive. And I think that's fair because when they sell a third party item, uh, Walmart loses out on uh, the hundred dollars, the GMV, not the commission. So, so I, I think that's kind of a fair comparison and you have to look at it way, that way because it is the transactional value. Certainly offline retail loses the transactional value. Yep, that I mean, and that certainly captures the wallet share from the consumer. I'm always amazed by how few people seem to get that. So, like, you go to internet retailer and their their IR500, and they they have Amazon listed at sixty billion dollars in revenue. Like, there was a article on LinkedIn this week talking about how how Amazon's forty percent of all e-commerce and is as big as the, its next twenty one competitors, and it it cited Amazon at sixty billion. And I'm reading those articles and I'm going. Yeah, but you know, Scott has taught me that Amazon's actually 135 billion, and frankly, that that 3P revenue is is probably more profitable business for Amazon than the 1P is in many cases. 
Yeah, I think it's been kind of the Amazon has had two cash cows and for a long time we didn't realize that AWS was a cash cow and now they've had to split it out and, and that's been pretty amazing. Uh, and then the other one that if they ever split it out, I think, you know, people would be floored is the 3P business. I, I suspect it's extremely profitable for them. It's hard to lose money on 3P sales where it's, you know, darn easy to have slow turns on 1P sales and lose money. Absolutely. One important correction I want to make is that if I sell $100 in merchandise, I'm selling it on Tmall at a 4% take rate, not on Amazon at a 12% take rate. So I'm making a lot more on that $100 sale. Okay. And you'll figure out how to, how to promote it and ship it to China. Ab- absolutely. Well, I'm not, not necessarily. People are shopping uh, Tmall all over the world now. Yeah, yeah. You could be on AliExpress, for example. Exactly. Interesting topic for uh, people to keep in mind that, that, you know, Amazon is really a juggernaut in the U.S. that they are eating a disproportionate percentage of the growth in e-commerce. And, you know, a lot of the simple minded articles we see really understate how, how dominant they're being. This is sort of a, a false uh, comfort. But the, you know, the one thing you can point out is as big as Amazon seems and as big a percentage as they seem of, of U.S. sales, Alibaba is actually even quite a bit larger. Um, so while Amazon might be like 40 or 60% of U.S. e-commerce, someplace in there, depending on how you count, Alibaba is like 80% of China's e-commerce, and it's 80% of a much bigger number now. Yeah, and they're bigger than Amazon, so there's always a bigger fish. And you know, we've, we've gone through these cycles in the, the tech world where – Everyone thought Microsoft was invincible and then Google kind of took the realm and then now you have Apple ascending and, um, you've got, you know, Amazon is, is out there on e-commerce, but what are Apple and Google going to do? Um, it's going to be kind of interesting to watch this play out, which is a good tease for our next show where we'll do some holiday predictions, but why don't you kind of tell folks what's going to happen to get us there? Our next episode, uh, we will cover some, some of, uh, both Scott and my predictions for next year. Um, But I know, uh, Scott, uh, we both have vacations planned for next week, so uh, you may have to wait two weeks for those predictions, and I think we'll skip next week's podcast if that's okay. Yeah, now that we've made it to episode seven, it's kind of smooth sailing, so we might as well just kind of take take a week off. Exactly. Hopefully that will build up the anticipation that much more. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to all seven episodes, this is your chance to catch up and be ready and fresh uh, for episode eight. Yep. Well, everyone have a happy holiday and a happy new year. Uh, Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 